0: listening to ohio v the world an ohio history podcast the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the buckeye state subscribe to the show on itunes and stitcher don't forget to rate and review us join the conversation now at facebook now here's your host alex hasty
1: Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 12, Ohio vs. First Ladies. Today we'll be talking about the lives of the eight wives of Ohio's presidents and also some other famous First Ladies and moments uh, that have crafted and molded this public role of the First Lady. We're three weeks out from Election Day, another contentious election, and normally at this time in the election cycle, the, the First Ladies are hitting the campaign circuit for their presidential husbands. But not this fall. Jill Biden and Melania Trump have mostly been absent from the campaigns, but the First Ladies have always played a role in the election and the administrations of their husbands. We'll look at the tenures of all of Ohio's eight First Ladies throughout history and also look forward to the day when the First Lady won't be a lady at all. We travel to Canton, Ohio today to the National First Ladies Library and Historic Site. And we speak with the CEO, Jennifer Highfield. I had an awesome chat. You can go to firstladies.org to learn more about this great site in downtown Canton. It takes up two city blocks once you add the adjoining buildings, you know, part of the national First Ladies Historic Site. And, and Jenny was awesome to talk to. I think we ended up chatting for well over an hour about First Ladies and a host of other things. Had some mutual friends uh, professionally and, and just a, a great leader for that institution with a vision for the future uh, and, and the field of, of women's history. Our second guest is the hilarious and brilliant Cormac O'Brien writer, historian, and, and even part-time comedian. Cormac is the author of Secret Lives of the First Ladies, a great book published originally in 20, 2006, twice updated with uh, Michelle Obama and Melania Trump in recent years, but and we have some other guests from previous episodes this year. I think we speak with a total of seven guests today, uh, so thank you to everybody for joining us. In show news, uh, Ohio View the World is going to be featured on the biggest radio station here in Columbus, anyway, 610 WTVN. Uh, On a weekly uh, segment We'll be starting on Saturday, October 24th uh, In the evening, normally from 6 to 7pm We just did the recordings for those shows And Ohio Be The World will be one of the A couple of podcasts that they're going to feature And share each Saturday evening We'll be talking about different episodes Of the show that we've done in the past Some of our favorites uh, And a lot of new content um, For the radio listeners So there will also be an entire hour that we did about Ohio's presidents That will air uh, the Saturday before the election. Uh, usually, like I said, it'll be from 6 to 7 on 610 WTVN. But with the return of Ohio State football, you know, we might get bumped here or there. Um, and we'll we'll let you know schedule-wise. If it's not going to be its normal time, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, social media uh, for more programming info on that. But very cool. Surely going to help us expand our show um, and, you know, talk about Ohio's interesting history to a lot more listeners. And, and you can help us too by, by sharing the show on your social media accounts. So just let people know about Ohio V. The World. That's how I find out about new and exciting podcasts. So as a friend tells me, uh, they share them on social media. And so do us a favor and share our Facebook page or website, Uh, and just post one of our episodes that you thought was cool. So thanks so much. And look for us on the traditional radio dial. All fall, that'll go through the end of the year, at least into the holidays. Uh, and 610 has a huge reach across the entire state So check out on your car radio um, And see if you can hear 610 WTVN And you can hear some new content For the old school AM radio audience Today we're going to analyze all of the First Ladies from Ohio And we'll look at the role of the First Lady How it's changed, become this celebrity you know, This public figure role that it really wasn't When Martha Washington uh, became the first First Lady in 1789 First Ladies are really universally very popular among the American people Laura Bush had an 80% approval rating in 2006 when her husband and the Republicans were getting trounced in the, in the midterms. Uh, Michelle Obama has a 91% approval rating among Democrats, a 60% approval rating nationally. Uh, and 60% these days is pretty high in these highly partisan times. Uh, also, check out, uh, speaking of Michelle Obama, CNN's new series uh, First Ladies just started last Sunday. Uh, They had an episode about Michelle Obama. It's a six part series on different First Ladies on Sunday nights. So, only two episodes left in season five Ohio and the Presidency. Thanks so much for listening, guys, this election season. Let's get started. It's episode 12 Ohio versus First Ladies. moment in Ohio's First Lady history is the story of Lucy Webb Hayes' 25th anniversary. When a 16-year-old Nellie Heron would be staying at the White House for a week over Christmas and the New Year's holiday, her dad was Hayes' friend and law partner in Cincinnati. and She fell in love with the White House. And according to Folklore, she claimed that one day she would marry a president and live in that historic residence at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. President Hayes reportedly told her, make sure you marry an Ohio man. And Two years later, she would meet that Ohio man, a big jovial, charismatic student at Yale who grew up in the Queen City, William Howard Taft. And it's through this man that Nellie Heron would make good on her promise to become the first lady and live in the White House. Nellie's on the cover of our episode here. If you look at uh, if you see it on the website or on SoundCloud or a lot of the other services, um, she is fascinating. And we talk with Jennifer Highfield, the CEO of the National First Ladies Library, about Nellie Heron at the silver anniversary of Lucy and Rutherford Hayes.
0: So we are so fortunate here in Ohio. We have all these presidents and first ladies, um, and not only from the state of Ohio, but from um, a time period very close together. So many of them knew them. So we were just talking about Ida Saxton McKinley. She knew a lot of these presidential families. She was very familiar, they were close. Um, I had a babysat for kids for the Hayes um, and so forth. The Garfields and the Hayes knew each other. The Tafts and the um, and um, the Hayes absolutely did know each other. So yes, um, Nellie was at the White House for the 25th anniversary, and you know the story goes that she became so intoxicated by the White House, right? That this she realized that this is the place, the true power seat for the United States. And she was really in all of that, and felt that one day she true, too wanted to be the mistress of the White House. She wanted to be here as well, and so that was just sort of the guiding force for Nellie for the remainder of her life was to get to that point. And of course, down the road she meets good old William Power Taft, and um, and she you know um, saw that he had interest, he had the ability, and um, and she definitely like many other women who were in her position pushed her husband to um to this place of of you know you know climbing the political ladder all the way yeah. to the presidency. So, you know, Nellie you know that's the way the story goes. I, I do believe some of that because Nellie was driven. She was a very um influential woman again in Cincinnati. Um you know, there's. I love Nellie because Nellie had spunk and spitfire. There's all of these really amazing anecdotal stories about Nellie and her young, in her youth, and and how she grew up in that community. And um, and I think she carried that all the way through her life. She just, you know, had this this gumption and this get up and go sort of tenacity about her that not only forced was a force to be reckoned with in her community, but in her household as well. So we do like to think of Nellie in that way. I don't know that she necessarily is the first, but she's the she's one of several who um, who take great advantage of, of where their husband can take, not only themselves, but, but them as well.
1: Our second guest this episode is Cormac O'Brien, writer, historian, and author of the book, Secret Lives of the First Ladies. There's a link in the show notes to buy it. I, I have the paperback. I listened to it again last month on Audible. Uh, It's funny, informative, and by far the best First Lady's book I've read, and I've read a few. Uh, While listening to the book, I noticed that one of his longest chapters is of our cover girl, Nellie Taft. She's like a turn-of-the-century kind of Claire Underwood from House of Cards, pushing her husband to the highest office in the land. But Nellie, she had an even tougher job and that she had a reluctant and and really an honest-to-a-fault subject in her husband, Will Taft. He would have preferred to just stay on the Ohio Supreme Court, live out his life in his beloved Cincinnati. But Nellie had other plans. We asked Cormac O'Brien about Nellie Taft.
2: Nellie is fascinating and and one of my favorites. And um, she, I think she was was a lot of things. I think she was something of a tomboy. Um, She was certainly unconventional. She was a contrarian. And she had no time for the notion that women uh, should keep their place. It, it just, um, I think she found that irritating and absurd and silly. Um, and she w- and she loved. She was gregarious. She, I think she had an adventuring, uh, adventuresome spirit. And, and in Ohio, yeah, she liked to belly up to the bar with the boys, smoke cigarettes, and, and find out where the conversation went. Um, she didn't like to stay at home. And she had a great education. I mean, this was someone, I think, who wanted, who wanted a big piece of the world she would end up getting it, too. She would have preferred to be president. I think in many ways she, she latched on to President Taft, her beloved Taft, as a way of finding that world because it, it still was hard, even for someone with her intelligence and ability, to do it on her own. I don't think he was averse to the idea of the presidency. It just wasn't at all at the top of his list. To him, the ideal job was, uh, was, was on the bench, especially the Supreme Court and and this is this is what's interesting about the dynamic because Nellie's doing it partly because she knows her husband's abilities and his talent but it's partly her <laughs> she wants, she uh, th- th- it's really interesting i mean I, I don't i don't know as i ever had a dream that i had as a young child <laughs> that didn't change when i got older nellie never changed she 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 had her her eyes set on the white house and she got there um pretty remarkable. Yeah. And, and it's, par- it's partly because of her driving um, Taft in, 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 into the presidency. So she had a, a great deal to do with that. It's not like he had the idea. Uh, it's not like he got there and thought, what the hell am I doing here? And of course he was, he was cajoled into it by his, his, uh, his good friend Theodore Roosevelt as well. But yeah, Nellie had a, a, an awful lot to do with that.
1: Nellie was an educated woman for the time. She attended a prestigious nurse school as a kid in Cincinnati. She took classes at the University of Cincinnati. She even served as a teacher as a young adult. Beautiful young woman from a well-to-do Cincinnati family. It was weird to people that she wanted to work when she took that job teaching. She loved and played music. She'd go on to become the president of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. And Nellie really did it all. Cormac's book taught me a couple things about this trailblazing. Nellie Taft... uh, including a couple first ladies first, like riding shotgun at the inauguration, taking a a serious interest in in the politics of her husband's administration. She even writes the first first lady's memoir.
2: That's a great symbol, her riding next to her husband in the inaugural parade. It came about because Theodore Roosevelt uh, had decided not to. Uh, He was going to break with tradition and he was not going to ride with the incoming president. She jumped on that and she said, well, I'll ride with him. Nobody had done that before. And it's classic Nellie Taft, uh, because she really would be co-president, um, which t- uh, her husband openly called her during the during the administration. And that administration would be a little stormy for people who uh, Congress people, members of the administration, who came to converse or consult with the president, because she was almost always there with him. Uh, she was listening in on the conversations. She did not hesitate ever to offer an opinion. She had her own opinions about what should be done about this, that, and the other thing, appropriations, legislation, that sort of thing. And it was irksome because uh, they you, if you were calling on the president, you were calling on, on Nellie Taft as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was, she, I don't know if she's the first one to write a memoir, but she's the first one to get it published, uh, I think in 1914. So that's uh, again, hardly surprising. Um, a a very literate, educated woman with a lot to write about. I mean, this is a fascinating life.
1: Nellie reaches her ultimate goal of living in the White House when her husband is elected president in 1908. It's always cool to see someone, you know, living out their dream. But Nellie's story would have a major bump in the road just a few months after coming into the White House. Nellie Taft suffers a terrible stroke while on the presidential yacht sailing the Potomac. Her husband, Taft, is crushed. His age said he looked like a big, stricken animal that night. But he worked on reteaching Nellie how to speak, and she, she worked at it, and she worked at it, starting with words like the, and those two worked together every day. And it's really a, a great story of America's you know, number one power couple persevering together. Uh, she would ultimately achieve a pretty similar quality of life in the later White House years, but there was definitely some dark times.
2: It's one of those things that comes out of nowhere. You know, this this dynamic woman is suddenly laid low. Immediately afterward, while her you know her face was sort of essentially frozen by by the uh, stroke, so conversation was impossible. Uh, she was self-conscious. She would sit at President on the conversation still, and be present without having to uh, put people off uh, by her by what she considered her awkward presence. Uh, her face would be um, uh, impaired for the rest of her life, uh, it got a little better. And she tried to uh, assume the same responsibilities that she did previously, but it wasn't quite the same after that.
1: You can hear a lot more about William Howard Taft and his famous wife in our next episode. will be the season finale, William Howard Taft vs. the World. We'll go to Cincinnati and Philadelphia and to New York City to talk about uh, William Howard Taft. Nellie's big life uh, would come to an end in 1943. It was during the Second World War she died in her adopted home of Washington, D.C. She's buried right next to her husband in Arlington National Cemetery, one of only two first ladies buried there, along with Jackie Kennedy. But her legacy still lives on every spring in the capital city. The gorgeous cherry blossom trees that the district is known for, whether you're walking along the Tidal Basin next to the Jefferson Memorial or just cruising down the mall, you can see these beautiful trees when they bloom. There's the National Cherry Blossom Festival in DC as well. It's canceled this year due to the coronavirus, but Colmack O'Brien, our guest, closes out our story of my favorite Ohio First Lady, Helen Heron Taft and her legacy in the nation's capital.
2: She wanted to beautify um, Washington. And uh, as it turns out, she had, uh, during her stint as queen, as it were, uh, of the Philippines, Uh, she had developed in their travels throughout the East a close relationship with the mayor of Tokyo. And it is the mayor of Tokyo she got to send uh, these these cherry trees. The first batch actually died. Uh, They had to do it again. But we have Nellie Taft and her relationship to to the Japanese uh, for the cherry trees that festoon Washington to this day. It, it, it's an iconic element of the Capitol. And we have Nellie Taft to thank for that.
1: Our second Ohio First Lady, it was the woman who occupied the White House when Nellie Taft made her visit to her future home in uh, 1877. And that was Lucy Webb Hayes, a native of Chillicothe. Uh, the Hayes uh, would meet the Webbs when Lucy and her family moved to Delaware, Ohio, when she was just a girl. She went to Cincinnati Wesleyan Female College, a very famous uh, old school down there when she was reintroduced to Rudd Hayes, and they began dating. Lucy's best known for her nickname, Lemonade Lucy. She was a temperance advocate and instituted her rule, her ban, on drinking at the White House when they lived there from 1877 to 1881. Cormac O'Brien tells us of the origin of this name, Lemonade Lucy, and the one time that they did serve alcohol in the White House.
2: The consensus is that there is no evidence of people writing Lemonade Lucy until after her term. Um, but she was she was not a member of, of the Women's Temperance Union, which she considered a dangerous political organization. But she herself was a teetotaler. Uh, she didn't necessarily mind people who enjoyed alcohol in moderation once in a while. She didn't judge that. But she was someone who personally believed that teetotalism um, was a way to go um, and uh, her husband was the same, consequently, they banned uh, alcohol during their administration and that was a, that was funny to the, the American public at the time, which um, granted the temperance movement was gaining steam, but this was still a, a, a drinking culture, which is one of the reasons that temperance was gaining steam. Um, (laughs) So they were mocked openly uh, by the press, pretty pilloried pretty brutally about the whole thing. And there was even a, um, there was a tavern uh, up the street from them uh, that was called the last chance. Uh, So if you were on your way to to an event at the White House, this was gonna be your last chance to get in a a drink unless you were carrying. There was a Russian delegation early in 1877. And I, I, I think, someone on staff was like, you can't, you can't possibly have Russians <laughs> and not serve. And there were, uh, they served el- uh, alcohol at, at that. And I, I believe that was the sole exception, as far as I can tell.
1: Maybe that party got way out of hand. I guess we'll never know.
2: I, I don't think, yeah, I think, I think uh, it did uh, or out of hand enough. And it, it, it merely, uh, it was the exception that proved the rule as far as, as the Hayes were concerned.
1: Jenny Highfield rejoins us to talk about the second most famous family from Canton, Ohio. Besides the McKinleys, uh, there was the Saxtons. Jenny tells us about the founding family of Canton and their accomplished vivacious and athletic daughter Ida, who would end up in the White House. Her wonderful, uh, Jenny's wonderful National First Ladies Library is next to Ida's historic home, the Saxton House. We talked to Jenny Highfield about who was Ida Saxton.
0: You know, this family, we call them one of the original families of um, Stark County. So Stark County was founded in 1805. This is one of the very first Germanic families that moved into the area. Um, The family was really um, proactive in looking at what was going to be the epicenter of the area in Stark County, and they moved right into downtown Canton. And in Canton, in its own right, has been in its heyday um, called the the Little Chicago and so forth. So it was a big deal. Um, And so they purchased property right downtown, right near Town Square, and started to build. Um, the Saxon home that we have here on site was built in the 1840s. The first part of it was built in the 1840s. Um, and this family had money, lots of money. Her sister Pina, her brother George, and her all received wonderful education here in, in this region. The father also believed he ran the bank in town. and. He And so it was really important that they didn't not only receive sort of finishing education for girls that was really around how do you become a good wife a good hostess a good you know caregiver for your family how do you run and operate a house and to be charming and good with arts and and articulate um, they actually received the same formal education their brother George did, which is again, very uncommon for the time. She worked in her father's bank. Um, she was a teller, but she also managed the bank for her father when her father wasn't um, right, in town yeah. and working. And so, um, and so she was well known and the family was well liked in the community. And because they were here downtown, so to set the stage for this, um, I am I'm looking out my window as I'm pointing, but I see the the city hall literally on outside my window. On looking out this side of my window, the house is right here. It's two blocks to this epicenter of downtown Canton from their house. So they really were the important part of this this community, and they owned all of the property. So this area was called the Saxton Quarter. They owned all the property down here, and so those daughters. Um, were very influential. And I think that really sets the stage for what Ida then becomes with William when we get to the political platform.
1: The lives of almost all of Ohio's First Ladies are tragedies. You have Nellie Taft having her massive stroke upon her reaching her goal of living in the White House, the assassinations of their husbands. uh, And none were more tragic than Ida Saxton McKinley, the beautiful and rich Belle of Canton, when she was a young woman, before she met William McKinley, our 25th president, she was engaged to a Civil War officer. She and her sister went on this six-month trip to Europe, and she was to get married upon her return, you know, the trip of a lifetime. But while she's there, she gets word that her fiancé dies from illness, and she comes back to Canton. She works at her father's bank and eventually meets this hotshot young attorney, Major William McKinley. They would marry, in the social event of the season in Canton on January 25th, 1871. Our guest from our very popular two part season premiere this year, uh, called William McKinley vs. The World, uh, he rejoins the show. The professor of history at the nearby University of Akron, Kevin Kern, tells us about the rapid decline in Ida's health that would persist throughout the rest of her life and happens shortly after she gets married.
3: And this is, I think, part of McKinley's public appeal at the time, was, was because he so clearly and, and uh, publicly, deeply loved and doted on Ida Saxton McKinley. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, it's, it, it really is very tragic. I mean, uh, Ida, boy, you, you hate to see anyone go through this. The wheels really began to come off the wagon for Ida during a, just a dreadful two-year period early in their marriage. Ida's mother, she'd been very close to her. She dies two weeks before she was supposed to give birth to her second child, and that's bad enough, losing your mother. But then uh, Ida injures herself, falling out of a carriage when she attended her mother's funeral, which seems to have done some damage to her head and her spine, and from that point on she suffered from some lameness in one leg and uh, uh, periodic epileptic seizures. Uh, As if all that were bad enough, she has a difficult delivery and her infant daughter, which she names Ida after her deceased mother, uh, dies just a few months later. And then a couple of years later, her other child, Katie, dies of fever at the age of three. So bam, 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 bam. She gets hit by these terrible events, is absolutely devastated, both emotionally and physically, and becomes deeply dependent on William for the rest of their marriage. As governor, uh, he had this little ritual every day that at an appointed time in the morning and afternoon, uh, he would go out to the plaza in front of the Capitol building in Columbus. He looked up to the window of their residence, which is just across the street, and he takes off his hat towards her, uh, and she waves back to him. And it's a, a sweet marital gesture, of course, but it was actually also his way to check up on her regularly. So he has this public, very public persona of a devoted husband that makes him all the more popular, especially among women. Uh, and as his good friend Marcus Hanna once said, President McKinley has made it pretty hard for the rest of us husbands here in Washington. Uh, such, such a high bar for being a doting husband.
1: It's likely that Ida had epilepsy. That wasn't a disease that medicine knew about or how to treat in the 19th century. Ida struggles for the rest of her husband's life. And notice I said only the really the rest of her husband's life. Jenny Highfield talks to us about her findings about Ida's condition and the possible contributing factors of the treatment that was being prescribed to her in the 19th century.
0: Right, so medicine is a challenge here. Um, what they would diagnose her with um changes through her lifetime so it started off with really severe headaches um, and some some convulsion that would come with that did those events actually cause those issues or symptoms did they exasperate them or was the treatment of those symptoms causing more symptoms and so forth so each time these these sort of things mount her symptoms become worse and then she starts to have seizures Um, and there's also bouts of severe depression that comes with it as well Um, and again, the depression could be due to the symptoms, but it could be due to a woman who had a very lively lifestyle, who then was sort of bound at home, um, and she didn't like that. And so at that time, you know, they didn't even use the word epilepsy, right? There, that just wasn't even in the vocabulary. So they would. Um, she was diagnosed with what was called phlebitis. Phlebitis happens a lot of times when you birth, it happens because of blood clots and so forth. That's what they assume, and that's what they treat her for. She's treated by many different doctors, especially when it comes to her time in the White House. Um, the doctor who was treating her there, um, when we look back at the records, there's a clear des- there's a clear desire to control her symptoms because they're worried about the her appearance. Yeah. They're worried about what that would look like. And like I said, Ida did not want to just sit back in the background and do nothing. She wanted to be vibrant. She wanted to be part of what was going on. And so in order to do that, they started medicating her more and more. And we, and we can actually physically demonstrate this to you because the clothing she wore prior to her going in the White House and the clothing she wore when she was in the White House, her waistline shrinks to literally this big. I, I can almost wrap my hands around her waistline. Um, and that's because she's so over-medicated at that point. They're almost, in, in some circumstances, putting her into a stupor where she's just sleeping most of the time and then she's not eating and so forth. Miraculously, actually, after, um, unfortunately, her husband dies, starts to get better when she comes home because she's not getting medicated as much. And she's in an environment where she can control that. And so the seizures start going away towards the end of her life. The issues start going away. So there is a lot of question. Um, about whether or not it, if the treatment is what might have been caught, this is where the conversation, if the treatment might have been what was causing the symptoms to be worse um, or, or was it exasperated by everything? What happened to her in her life, the treatments, and what she did to try to, con- you know, get control of her life.
1: Sick or not, Ida Saxon-McKinley was one of the most fashionable women of her time. She wore cutting-edge formal wares and all these events at the White House. We talk with Jenny Highfield about Ida McKinley, the fashion icon.
0: So yes, Ida was a very, from very young age, very much interested in clothing. There's a lot of conversation about Ida and clothes. Um, her, um, she has a style that she develops later that becomes the typical sort of Ida style that we can recognize almost instantly to the point when somebody comes to us and says, we believe this is an Ida Saxton article of clothing we can almost just look at it and verify without even have to do much more because she she becomes so specific and in, in this but because of the wealth of her family and the capacity they had for you know giving Ida these things she would have dresses created not only by local dressmakers but all the way over in chicago and the east coast as well and she would visit those areas so that she could tell them exactly what she wanted the fabric everything um, and she got, again, very specific later in life um, to what that was, but she loved, absolutely loved clothes. She loved to um, wear the latest fashions, um, and she loved to look very pretty. As Ida continues into adulthood, so we're talking high Victorian period, you mentioned the high collar, yes, so that becomes the the um, the very big fashion at the time is that high collar, um, tight fitted, the corsets really important right now. So the corsets really pulling in the waistline um, to accentuate a really tiny, tiny waist and Ida had a very tiny waist. Ida also loved jewelry, that was another big Important part her accessories um, Ida has some pretty fantastic pieces of jewelry and then of course the very famous um, diamond tiara that everybody if you watch Pawn Stars or anything or lo- know anything about local history and lore um, everybody knows about the famous diamond tiara so you know without being able to show you her fabrics were always very decadent um, detailed a lot of um, really specific parts and pieces that really just, you know, were not the common clothes that everyday women would wear. Um, And so we find that's probably one of the favorite parts of from a lot of people here, the collection, because she has such fantastic clothes and they're in great condition. We were blessed that the family preserved them and until somebody could take them on in a museum.
1: As we close our discussion on Ida McKinley, we play a clip from one of the Great guests we had from the McKinley episodes, Amber Ferris, the former executive director of the McKinley Birthplace Museum in Niles, Ohio, in the Youngstown area. Amber talks to us about the origins of this concept that, you know, the idea of Ida the invalid and how those old and misinformed standards for judging a woman and a mother played a role in her place in history and how silly it really is when you actually look at the historiography. Amber was such a a fascinating interview. We appreciate her coming on. Uh, to give us insights into the McKinleys, and really for her pointing out uh, that we should go talk to Jenny Highfield as well.
4: Ida was actually quite strong-spirited and um, very, very capable. And a lot of the writing about Ida doesn't paint her, as I said, in a very pretty light. But it's also, there's this um, high value in that time placed on motherhood. And the way you see that best represented in, in the McKinley story is mother McKinley is put at the top. She's so high regarded. She only, she only lost one baby. And so the book written by Margaret Leach, it's said to be the best McKinley biography because there's a lot of these stories. I personally couldn't finish the book. I got a chapter and, and got so annoyed. Why? Because they put mother McKinley on a pedestal well, she only lost one child and it was due to her good and studious nature or something like that. Yeah. Almost immediately afterwards, talking about how Ida lost both of her daughters and never had any more. It felt mean. Like that's the only, like as a mom, I'm like, but they literally didn't know that you had to wash your hands to not spread germs. It's luck that she kept all of her children alive. It didn't really have to do with any any personal thing that made her better than Ida 30 years later.
1: Cormac O'Brien joins us again And, and go to his website Corm- uh, Cormac C-O-R-M-A-C O'Brien.com and, and buy his excellent book Secret Lives of the First Ladies uh, And you can buy that again There's a link in the show notes uh, We have it in you know, heart, or paperback form And on Audible uh, And We watch some of Cormac's stand-up On the internet As well as uh, being a writer He also moonlights as a comedian In New York City We talk about how he got into stand-up and as a writer and a historian, is there any comedy gold that can be mined out of his vast knowledge of U.S. history and the First Ladies?
2: It, it is a tough area to find comedy gold. But the, uh, I, was, I got into comedy because of a friend who lives around the corner from me. And we were at their house, my wife and I were at their house at a dinner party. And this friend, Becky Viduccio is a professional comedian who gives comedy workshops. And she was starting up another one. And she knew I was a writer. And she thought it would be really good for me. Um, and, you know, just as a different angle of getting at writing and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. she, she knew I had a sense of humor. And, she, and so she thought it would be great for the class. And, and I said, yes, I'll do it now. What's interesting is that I was drunk at the time. Sure. So, sure. so <laughs> I woke up the next morning and said, I, "I said yes last night, didn't I, to my wife?" And she said, "You sure did." And I was like, "Oh God, I'm going to be up on on stage and all that." And it worked out great because at the end of the at the end of the workshop, you get to perform. your are set in New York City uh, at Gotham Comedy Club, which became uh, a place I did a lot of comedy at.
1: That's a big uh, club.
2: It is, it's, it's, uh, it's a, a famous club it's a, and it's a great club. It, it, the thing is, I did my first like half dozen shows there and it spoils you because I started doing shows at other clubs in Manhattan that were just just really lousy and dingy and ill kept um, and Gotham is, is a first rate operation. So that was fun. But uh, I, I, ha- I, have, I don't do jokes about the presidents or the first ladies, uh, I tried. Or, or other history. I mean, a, a huge history buff, and I've written military history and stuff like that, and right. I, can't, I can't work any of it into a joke <laughs>
1: yet. Yeah, you, can't, you haven't found a good Antietam joke yet that you're ready <laughs> to... <laughs> really
2: no, not yet.
1: Someday. We asked Cormac O'Brien about how did this role of the First Lady go from basically a private citizen, uh, the wife of a president, to a public figure, a celebrity. Cormac gave an excellent answer, and we'll play it for you, and he points to three First Ladies who were responsible for this evolution, uh, no matter how involuntary their involvement was. We were discussing how I really didn't care for Harry Truman's wife, Bess, a persistent complaint that Miss Ohio v, the World has had to endure for many years. But we asked, Cormac, how did we get here where the First Ladies are in play when it comes to politics and the national discourse?
2: I think there are three. And it's, a, it's uh, in my opinion, it's an evolution. That begins um, with uh, Frances Cleveland. Yeah. And, uh, and that's not deliberate on her part. Um, that was a perfect storm. She was young and beautiful. She was marrying a, a bachelor president in the White House, first White House wedding. Um, and uh, she spoke French. She, and of course, this was a scandalous relationship because uh, Grover Cleveland had once been her, her minder, uh, had been a, a kind of surrogate father after her own father died when she was quite young. Um, I joke about the fact that Grover Cleveland's first major gift to his future wife was a baby carriage for her. <laughs> and that's how long they knew each other. And she knew him as uncle Cleve for the majority of her life. And then, and here they are getting married which was scandalous. The wedding itself was truly a major, major event. There are people waiting outside the White House for the new first couple to emerge. And then they follow these people on their, their honeymoon in Maryland. And it becomes a, it becomes a farce. Uh, they, they can't get any privacy. I mean, there are people stalking through the woods, uh, trying to get a look at the cabin. Um, security is, isn't up to the task. And uh, it, it's, it's really, it's kind of, it's rather disgusting. And Grover Cleveland would, uh, would embrace a hatred of the press and, and public scrutiny that would endure for the rest of his life. What we're seeing here is that for the first time, I think, um, there is an aura of celebrity around the first ladyship. What, what happens, I think, next is Edie Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt's wife, Edie, uh, is keenly aware of the fact that um, with the emergence of this imperial presidency and the familiarity that people are starting to have with the first family, that there, there needs to be control about the messaging. And she's the first one to get staff on uh, the public dime. And most of it is to control number one photography, which is a huge deal at the time. So images of the president, the first lady, and the first family are very carefully controlled. Uh, she's a real Nazi about this, and she she brings the hammer down uh, when it comes to anything that's uh, you know any kind of paparazzi that is not invited. She's controlling the household in a way that previous first ladies never had an opportunity to do, and it's a, again this growing awareness that uh, the first lady has a job to do. And then finally, I think of course it's it's the other Roosevelt, Eleanor, and I think what she does is. Look at this as an opportunity. She's going to be in the public light anyway. Why not do something with it? And she was a doer anyway. She had a call to service, very much like her her husband. It's something I think they shared. They they believe that they came from uh, from a very privileged background. Uh, they were American elites. They had the best education money could buy, um, and they had uh, they had leverage uh, as American aristocrats. So put it to work. And uh, And she looks at it now, I mean her, her, her work was so furious, both on behalf of her own causes as well as her husband's, that uh, it, it became obvious that um, it was hard for women coming after her, even your beloved best Truman, to just sit <laughs> back and do nothing, although best tried. And then I think, I think you, you brought up the, the, the major point during all of this is, is that, it's public scrutiny. The 24-hour news cycle that was perhaps an inevitable culmination of, of the way media had been working for decades uh, has made it um, impossible for anyone in the, in the White House to truly hide and, and just be an ordinary person.
1: Our most recent episode on Benjamin Harrison, our 23rd president, it didn't go into too much detail about his wife, Carolyn, or Carrie Harrison. But after reading Cormac's book, we learned that Carolyn Harrison from southwest Ohio, she was a pioneer when it came to being a politically active first lady, very underrated, uh, in advancing the cause of American women during her years in office. She doesn't get credit for it, but that's why we have Ohio View the World to point out these forgotten points in Ohio and American history
2: whether uh, as the first president of the Daughters of the American Revolution right. or by donating to uh, all-female colleges. This is, a, this is a way that she can use the First Ladyship to forward the, uh, the cause of women around the country. That makes her a very important person, I think, because uh, I think she made a difference. And she was the first, again, to, to use the White House to launch that kind of campaign. And I think she deserves to be remembered for that.
1: In Cormac O'Brien's book, uh, The Secret Lives of the First Ladies, it taught us that Carolyn Harrison gives the first speech by a First Lady and discusses that historic moment in First Lady's history. And what was Carolyn Harrison passionate about and what was her speech about?
2: It's as the first president of the New Daughters of the American Revolution, which she looks at as kind of a women's, um, a women's liberation ideal. That, that's really an anachronistic term, but a suffragist uh, movement and a, an organization that can advance uh, the, the cause of women, and in, in part by reminding women and Americans in general about the role that women have played throughout American history, going back to the American Revolution, whether it's Martha Washington or other women who, who, who have, you know, uh, borne just as much responsibility as their men uh, throughout uh, the nation's history. And it's, it's, that is the first public speech delivered by a First Lady. What's interesting, too, is that it's the first speech given, delivered by a First Lady, written in her own words. There have been appearances by First Ladies before, but not, not quite like this. Here she is speaking as um, a prominent American speaker in her own right, both as uh, almost a, a pseudo-politician and as uh, a person of interest.
1: Four out of eight Ohio presidents would die in office. That's half the number, total number of presidents who did die in office. We already discussed William McKinley, who was tragically shot and killed in 1901. And uh, go listen to our part two of our season premiere, um, William McKinley versus the World. I really think it's one of the best, uh, most exciting episodes we've done. Get that, the whole story of his rise to becoming one of the most popular U.S. presidents ever and, and his murder. But Carrie Harrison was the only Ohio First Lady to die in office. She died at the White House on October 25th, 1892, just a little over a week before her husband faced reelection. She's one of three First Ladies to die in office, the last being in 1914 when Ellen Wilson died. Uh, the first was Letitia Tyler in 1842. Both of the other presidents remarried while in office to younger women. Harrison himself had a controversial second marriage many years later, after leaving office but we talked to Cormac O'Brien about how the death from tuberculosis of Carrie Harrison it stopped the presidential campaign of 1892 and all the country mourned her passing they still didn't reelect her husband in November
2: it's October in the campaigning season and it's devastating it's obviously it's 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 a dark day for the country again she she wasn't she didn't have that celebrity status that Francis Cleveland had but she was respected, the nation was mourning, and it took, it took kind of the, the energy out of the, the campaigning season. Both sides sort of agreed, out of respect for the late First Lady, they would stop campaigning. It just took the wind out of the nation in many ways.
1: The original Ohio First Lady was born before the Declaration of Independence. Anna Sims was born in 1775, and she's one of only two First Ladies to never live in the White House. It's her, and it's Martha Washington. Martha's got a good excuse the White House didn't exist when her husband was president. Uh, but Anna Sims's husband, William Henry Harrison, died just a month into his office. Uh, we did an episode, William Henry Harrison vs. the World. You can go back and listen to that one uh, from earlier this summer. But she never wanted him to be president. Anna Sims wanted them to just enjoy their retirement. William Henry Harrison was the oldest president ever elected for up until the 1980s. And she just wanted them to enjoy their, their time together on the Ohio River at their property in North Bend, Ohio, just west of Cincinnati. We spoke with Harrison expert and historian Jerry Landry, the host of the Presidency's podcast, and also the host of How We Found Him, his hosting of the old podcast, the William Henry Harrison podcast. We asked him about the first Ohio First Lady.
5: Yeah, so Anna Sims, um, she didn't make it to, to the White House. Her father, um, John Cleves, he had been Chief Justice of the New Jersey Supreme Court. He had served in the Continental Congress. But then, like many people, he decided to try his hand out west. And so he moved himself and his family to what was then the Northwest Territory. And it was in that, that area that's now um, the Cincinnati area. Anna was actually well educated for a woman at the time. In terms of the pre-Civil War first lady, she was actually, you know, the most well educated. She married William Henry Harrison when she was 20. Her father was actually opposed. They were a bit sneaky. They waited until her father was out of town on business, and that's when they got married. They ended up having 10 children. She really didn't want Harrison to run for president in 1840. She ended up being and is still to this date, the oldest woman to become first lady. She wanted them to just be able to retire, live out the rest of their lives in North Bend, you know, have a nice, quiet retirement. Of course, he ended up becoming president. Well, he ended up passing away. She did not make it to D.C.
1: Our second Ohio president was one of the most famous people of the entire 19th century. Talk about Ulysses S. Grant, the hero of the Union Army in the Civil War. His wife, Julia Dent Grant, was not an Ohioan. She was from Missouri. But we wanted to share one story, she's still technically an Ohio First Lady, Uh, a story about the Grants when they dined with the most iconic person globally of the 19th century, and that's Queen Victoria of the British Empire. She ruled from 1837 through the rest of the century, dies in 1901. You know, the sun doesn't set on the British Empire. Um, and I loved learning about President Grant and his family's tour around the world after his presidency. Really fascinating uh, trip that he took. He was a rock star, especially in England. But Queen Victoria was not a fan of his wife, Julia Dent, according to our guest Ryan Semmes from the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library at Mississippi State University.
6: The Grants get invited to dinner with Queen Victoria. They have their son, Jesse, with them, their youngest son, Jesse. And Jesse is not invited to the dinner. Mrs. Grant kind of throws a fit. Jesse has been invited to dine with, I believe the phrase is, the household. Mrs. Grant thinks that means the staff. I think the household are some of the lower lords or something like, you know, I, I don't I don't it's know. It's still a nice dinner. <laughs> it's still a very nice dinner, um, but not with Queen Victoria. Julia goes to, to President Grant and says, have you heard about this, that Jesse's not invited? And of course, Grant says he can have his place at the dinner, because he doesn't care, he doesn't want to, do um, he, he does not care about these things at all. Finally, one of the protocol officers goes to Victoria and tells her that Mrs. Grant is, is upset that Jesse has not been invited, and Queen Victoria in magnanimity says, Jesse can come to dinner. So they go to dinner. In Queen Victoria's diaries, which God bless her, she also keeps excellent diaries, Uh, She writes about just in one small entry that the dinner that night and she says uh, had a lovely, had a fine dinner with the former American president. He was fine enough in that brusque American way. Um, She goes, but his wife, oh, how she dotes on her child. It was so vulgar. She pets him on the head and calls him her little puppy. It was it was disgusting or something like that. So she Queen Victoria just was not a fan of Julia and the way she doted on Jesse. I think what happened is once Jesse got there, Julia needed to show how impressive Jesse was to Queen Victoria, and so she was trying to like show out and show him off. <laughs> um, and Victoria was just basically just like he's here he should just sit at the other end of the table i don't i don't care that he's here but julia was just trying to show him off to the queen and the queen just didn't care uh grant you know just sat there quietly and smoked his cigar and-
1: i'm super proud of our third episode this season when we discuss the rise and tragic death of james garfield go listen to that one but one of our guests was todd Arrington, the site manager of the james garfield presidential historic site in Menor, ohio He just released a book, uh, The Last Lincoln Republican, about Garfield's 1880 election. Uh, Really looking forward to reading that just came out. Todd spoke with us about Garfield's wife, Lucretia Rudolph, a few months back. They met as college students at what was called the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, which is now Hiram College in Hiram, Ohio. Crete, as President Garfield called her, uh, like most Ohio First Ladies, was very educated. Education was so important in the state of Ohio and Lucretia was quite smart. Garfield, I believe, was maybe our smartest president in a scholarly way at least, but Todd talks about how his wife was his intellectual equal.
3: Uh, He married Lucretia Rudolph. She is also very intelligent, very educated for that era, and as brilliant as James Garfield was, he, he did comment that Lucretia was his intellectual equal in every way. They both loved literature. They loved to read. Uh, they read to themselves and to each other and to their children. And so I, I think that's really my favorite thing about Garfield's sort of intellectual life is that he had someone to share it with who he viewed as, as purely as an equal. And, and they were able to kind of pursue those, those things that they really loved and, and cared about and, and wanted to know more about with each other and then on with their children as well.
1: James Garfield was shot in July of 1881. In his first year in office, he lingered there for months before dying, and Lucretia Garfield was right there by his side in the White House as his doctor's malpractice slowly killed the president. She grew in esteem with the American people as the devoted wife during these trying months. Jenny Highfield mentions how Crete was appalled by the lack of equal pay for equal work. Uh, for the nurses for her husband's female nurses when compared to their male counterparts lucretia garfield decided to do something about it
0: there's this really amazing letter that garfield wrote um the start of the letter is very cordial and kind to a person in the military and then she says i'm writing this letter and i'm asking you to tell nobody that i wrote you but the nurses were not getting equal pay as the same as the men were getting paid. And frankly, some of them weren't getting paid at all for their work um, in military hospitals. And she felt that that was an egregious issue that was not being addressed by anyone, but had to be addressed. And more importantly, it hit home for her when, when it was dealing with her own husband and her own family. And she just was shocked and appalled to learn this information. And so she wanted to do something about it. And then it changed. They did do something about it. So her letter
4: made a difference.
1: The final Ohio First Lady is also our most recent Ohio First Lady, Florence Kling, the wife of our 29th president, Warren Harding. Uh, We discussed the dynamics of this complicated marriage and Warren's well-documented affairs in our episode, Episode 9, Warren Harding vs. the World. But Florence was from Marion, Ohio as well, just like her husband. Uh, But she ran the show. Florence was super involved in the business side of her husband's newspaper, The Marion Star, and in promoting her husband's political career from a state senator in Ohio all the way to the White House. Florence was our first divorced first lady. uh, uh, Only Betty Ford to this day, I believe, was divorced. It's not a big deal now, but it certainly was in the early 20th century. But Florence was a force of nature. Jenny Highfield tells us about the Duchess.
0: So the Duchess was actually a nickname that her husband gave her. (laughs) It was, um, he just felt like she was energetic, strong-willed, and it befitted her. Um, it wasn't necessarily a, a, a negative thing. It wasn't meant to be a negative thing, though mm-hmm. I know there are many who use it as sort of a negative connotation for Florence. Um, you know, Florence is a very interesting woman. Um, she grows up, again, she um, grows up in a household that has a lot of influence in their community, that has um, money. But Florence is, again, she's strong-willed. She's popular, she has the ability, and she wants to make um, a place for herself in the world. And she knew that that was going to be a challenge because she was a woman. And so she did everything she could to to make that happen. She was um, with a man and had a son um, early on in her life. Um, That fell apart after she gave birth to her son and her father was like, you must come home she Florence had nothing to do with that you know Florence she rented out houses there's stories that supposedly she you know lived couch surfing and and so forth did whatever she had to do to not return to that and then here comes warren harding and warren it loved that spunk and tenacity that she had and really um felt like she could be an equal partner to them now you know they're with some consternation, I think, in their relationship because of that sometimes. And, um, and I think that, you know, goes into um, sometimes how Florence would really focus on her goals and I think less on um, the goals of her husband, despite always saying that, you know, my only hobby is my husband. I feel like when she says that, yes, because she's supporting him in every way she can so that he can continue to climb um, this political ladder, but I think in doing so, it's helping her. It's helping her climb a ladder to be able to do more um, in her um, in her own way.
1: And I had no idea about how much Florence Harding had pushed female issues as first lady. She was in favor of women's suffrage, and as an independent woman herself, she wasn't going to be muzzled as first lady. Jenny argues that she opens the door for a lot of more modern first ladies to be more outspoken. Jenny Highfield tells us how Florence Kling towed the line of 1920s feminism as she reopened the White House after years of it being closed off to the public during the Wilson administration.
0: Florence is a bit of a contradiction sometimes. Um, I, I think Florence does this to, again, to um survive where she's the time period she's living in right so you know she would come out and say that you know my only real hobby is my husband and she would talk about her amazing cooking skills and how wonderful of a housekeeper she was and how she would dote on him and her whole life was about this sort of domestic side Right. We know that wasn't the truth with her. She's working every day in a job. She's, you know, supporting her husband's political career in every way that she can. And on the other side of that, she insists on being called Florence Clean Harding. She wanted her maiden name included. She wanted her identity. She wouldn't wear her wedding ring. And you know, in that time period, that's a big deal. I don't wear my wedding ring now, but nobody would question that in that time period. That would lead to a lot of questions. Um, So I do think that Florence um, tried to play both sides to keep sort of the peace and to be able to do and influence the things that she could influence. You have to imagine though, being a feminist and supporting things like suffrage and equal employment doesn't always help your spouse's political career, especially during this time period. And so you see this with many first ladies in this time period of, of having to Quietly show support to feminist ideas um, or women's rights in a way that didn't wouldn't upset the apple cart of the yeah. political side of their lifestyle. And, um, and Florence absolutely did so. You know, she um, she focused on women's activities and women's achievements. She was the she hosted the first all women's tennis tournament at the White House. Um, she hosted Marie Curie at the White House. You know how much she supported the Girl Scouts. That was really important to her. Today we might not see that as a sort of a feminist suffrage support, but that really was because that was supporting young women and become and blossoming into these beautiful, bold, vibrant women who would go out and do things in their own community. Um, she did was a member of the League of Women Voters and the National Women's Party. She she so she did. She supported all of these things. And then, on the same token, she's supporting the veterans for wounded veterans soldiers. And she's supporting the Veterans Bureau. And, and Florence does a lot during her, her time in the White House. You know, she brought back the egg roll, um, which seems, again, frivolous. It's a little thing, but it's about bringing the community back to the White House. She starts opening the White House for tours again, letting people back into the institution, trying to create this um, atmosphere of transparency. Um, She would do photo ops, which a lot of her predecessors would not do. They, you know, again, they stayed in the background. It wasn't a place for them. Um, She would do impromptu speeches and so forth. Florence really, you know, Katie Sibley talks a lot about, Katie Sibley is a really famous first ladies um, historian. Katie talks a lot about Florence Harding because she really feels that Florence is truly one of the more modern first ladies Um, to really take that role to a new level, to a new political partner level uh, with their husband. and opens the doors for um, many other First Ladies to do a lot of amazing things. It's just unfortunate in the aftermath of their time in the White House, Florence has a lot of negativity that surrounds her.
1: The National First Ladies Library and Historic Site Awesome Place Uh, in downtown Canton, we implore you to go visit Jenny and her team over there. Uh, You'll need, though, first to go to firstladies.org to follow, you know, when exactly they're going to reopen. It's just a a great and important history museum here in the Buckeye State. They always have great exhibits, including one right now that discusses one of our favorite Ohio historical figures, Victoria Woodhull, the first woman to run for president. We've talked about her. She had her own episode back in Season 1. We talked about her this season in our Ohio vs. the Contenders, Episode 7. But we talked to Jenny Highfield, the CEO of... Uh, about the library and the historic site, and about running a history museum during the COVID pandemic.
0: So, the site started with the Saxon McKinley House um, and that and a garden space that's there as well. That all the original property that belonged to the Saxtons. Um, we started with the renovation of that property and restoring of that property, and frankly, the beginning of it was just to, for office space. Our organization never intended to be a historic site for people to visit we intended to be a place where research for feminist topics the first ladies could all be done and then that could be shared with the world but we had a responsibility to restore this house not only was it important because it's the home of a first lady it's the home of a first lady from birth to death and she lived there it was her house um, and that's very unique that's it's the only one in the world and so we started the process of restoration and while we were doing that um, on the next city block, we acquired another historic building that actually was owned by the family. It was a, It's a bank building. That became our research institute, our library, and then um, over time, it started to include different exhibits of all the artifacts that we started to collect. As we started collecting artifacts for the house from private collectors, donors, Washington and Smithsonian and so forth, we started getting other First Lady artifacts. People are like, well, we have this other stuff that we don't know what to do with because there's no institution that is responsible for the collection of First ladies' information and artifacts. And so we still to this day, get parts and pieces of things because even presidential libraries are like, we're really responsible for the president. That's why we are a presidential library. Right. What do we do with this stuff? So we do operate on then on two city blocks um, which is, a, is very unique in the midst of all of that work uh, we became partners and we became a national historic site and became partners with the national park service so we are a national park service site as well. They're wonderful partners here with us um, and you will see rangers national park service rangers when you come on property um, so it provides us with a really wonderful connection to um, to a, a great institution and uh, across the nation. As far as the pandemic, that does make it hard. Um, so we are, we, we like many other cultural institutions um, really were sort of um, had to rethink everything about what we do, how we do it and what that looks like um, for us. So our research education center is open. We have multiple exhibits in that, in that center for guests to see. Those exhibits do change a minimum of of two to three times a year we change those exhibits out um, because we can't possibly keep, we have to keep rotating collection out and telling different stories. Right now we have an exhibit up on First Ladies on the campaign trail talking about First Ladies who um, are support their husband on the pathway to becoming president. We we have another exhibit that is um, an exhibit about women who run for president. We start with um, Victoria Woodhull, who's an Ohio woman who oh, yeah, she's a she's a very unique story. I won't go into his Victoria's story, but she there's there's well worth a read for anybody interested all the way up to we stop with Hillary Clinton, we don't go into the most recent election, um, but that exhibit obviously continues to grow over time because one day we hope that there will be a female president. Okay. Um, so right now the house is not open. The house is very hard for us to socially, dis- safely socially distance people and give them a good experience in the house at the same time. Um, and so we continue to evaluate that month to month. We're anxious to get the house back open. It, it's been seven months now <laughs> since it's closed. So, um, And it's a really beautiful part of the assets that are here that people get to enjoy and visit. It tells such a beautiful story.
1: Jenny and the, the First Ladies site are the stewards, the curators of First Ladies history. And they have so much cool stuff in their collection. Like I said, you'll, you'll see that and interact with that if you make the trip to Canton. Again, check out firstladies.org uh, for more information about when they'll be open fully. But they're also a source for other museums, for First Ladies objects and other pieces of presidential memorabilia all, all over the country. And Jenny tells us about one of those really cool collaborations that they're doing right now, with the National Portraits Gallery in Washington, DC, which is one of my favorite museums in the entire capital.
0: Probably the last piece that I particularly love, it's actually a piece right now that's up at ICA in Cleveland, and it's about to go to Washington, DC, is Elizabeth Keckley's capelet she made for Mary Todd Lincoln. So Elizabeth Keckley is an amazing um, uh, freed slave who started doing um, dressmaking work, seamstress work for Mary Todd Lincoln, and then they became very dear friends. Um, so it's an unlikely friendship, and for a woman who's trying to grapple um, with being a free slave and and um, and taking and a woman taking care of herself, and Mary Todd Lincoln at the end when her husband's dead and she's leaving the White House, and how this friendship goes through. Because Elizabeth Keckley is an African-American woman, again, her history has gone and most of her dresses and so forth are gone. So there's only very few remnants left of Keckley's history in the world. And we're fortunate to have one of those pieces. It's going to Washington, DC. Um, we've been working with the National Portrait Gallery now for, gosh, it's been almost two years, on the first, and I hope it's not the only ever, comprehensive exhibit of first lady portraits so as you know they have the Hall of Presidents there yeah and one of the biggest questions they get asked on their response cards is why are there no portraits of first ladies here and so they're they've put together an exhibit um, when they started putting it together they thought well this should be easy right I mean it's first ladies there's pictures everywhere what they didn't realize is it's the thing we we're always touting telling everybody about is that um, these their history is scattered to the wind. It's in private collections, it's in museums, it's all over the place, historical societies and so forth. It's taken them this long to curate and collect and to get those pieces back um, to, to put this exhibit together. So it's gonna be a fantastic exhibit in Washington. It's supposed to open up the week after the election. Um, as you probably know, Washington is just starting to reopen some of the museums there. Um, so the hope is that this will be um, sort of the big opening, reopening exhibit for the National Portrait Gallery. Um, and it'll go through March. So we're proud um, to work with them on this exhibit to get this exhibit put together. And more importantly, we're proud to send Elizabeth's cape so that that can be part of the story for Mary Todd Lincoln. Um, and more importantly, this African-American woman who really deserves her story to be told as well.
1: And as I said, we, we spoke with uh, you know, Jenny Highfield, the CEO of the First Ladies Library for well over an hour discussed a number of first ladies that we just didn't have the time in this episode to include. But I'll play a quick clip about our current first lady and her unique, almost old school approach to the job. Jenny, in her role, uh, has met Melania Trump and it offers some insight into her term as first lady.
0: But the culture she was raised in, too, right? She's you're talking about somebody. I mean, I again, I have to repeat this too many times to people to remind them that, you know, she wasn't raised um, here, her expectations, her needs, her wants are very different. Um, but in, while being a melting pot, we forget that. We forget to think about the, that her culture and, and what that means. And, um, and that definitely influences her, I think every single day. I think that also is very much influences her personality and who she is. Um, I've had the pleasure of, of meeting her, um, on two different occasions and, She's a very private, very quiet person. When she has an opinion about something, she speaks that opinion for certain. Um, she's a very kind person. She's actually funny. I think she's funny. Um, you won't know that unless you get to know her personally. and. Um, And she protects herself, but more importantly, she's protecting her family. She has a son um, and trying to give him a normal lifestyle as much as she can, the same that many other First Ladies have done for their children. You know, I will say about this, about Melania Trump. I I have a great deal of sympathy because um, she follows some very larger-than-life characters. Yeah. Again, this society, the media has built up this expectation from that, and she has taken a very much more traditional role um in the White House. I and and there again, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Um and she certainly is focused on the things that are important to her uh, while she's in the White House. So I, I think that's a harsh judgment that she receives sometimes because you know, again, there's, there's no articulation of what she has to get done. She's done exactly what she's been told that she has to do. Um, and so wh- whoever follows her in four or eight, you know, four years from now or in four months from now um, will be very interesting to see what they do in that position and, and what, where they take it.
1: Thanks so much to Jenny for joining the show. She was fascinating to speak with and, and can't wait to go to Canton to see their collection and she was just such a treat to discuss, you know, American history uh, with her. So as we close here today, we look into the future of the role of the first lady. And as Jenny points out, it probably won't always be a first lady.
0: We're more interested actually what will happen to the role when it's not a woman, because it's going to happen it might happen in a year. It might happen in 10 years. Who knows? But at some point there's not going to be a lady. There's going to be a man in that position. And that's going to be really interesting because, you know, not to sound sexist and saying it, but a man is not going to want to play hostess to the white house. You know, first ladies have given up their jobs for this. They have given up their lifestyle for this. They have given up their, um, family commitments and their personal commitments to do this position. The curious thing will be, will a man do that? And will he shape this role differently? And then once he leaves, because I don't know that there will always be that case, I think we'll probably switch back to a woman in that position. Will that break the glass ceiling and allow for women to do things in this role um, that they weren't allowed to do or wasn't accepted for them to do in the past? Um, and many first ladies, and I'd say Hillary's probably the closest and more modern one, you know, who tried to continue down their career path and then what they wanted to accomplish, and not give that up for what their husband's career was doing, and and try to balance that, right? And many women do that every day, balancing their home life and their and their work life. And I, I it will be interesting to see what happens.
1: book recommendation for this episode is our guest Cormac O'Brien's book, Secret Lives of the First Ladies, Strange Stories and Shocking Trivia from Inside the White House. It's really a funny, informative book uh, and a look at all of our country's first ladies. They all get a chapter. There's a link in the show notes to buy the book. It's also on Audible, like we said, for download if you do the whole books on tape thing, which, which I love to do when I'm driving. Uh, we were speaking to Cormac about writing this book. You know, he'd written a book, uh, about the secret lives of the presidents. He's written other military histories. Um, and we're. we're us talking to him about, you know, how he never cared for Bess Truman's term as first lady in the 1940s and 50s. And if there was a first lady, he grew to not appreciate while researching the book.
2: And I, I, I grew to like the book a little bit more than the presidents. Yeah,
1: um, yeah. And I,
2: uh, mainly because I was learning a lot that I, I didn't know and what these women went through. Um, and that's one of the themes I think that emerges in the book is that almost none of them signed up for this and they find themselves uh, floundering um, And having to do stuff, uh, especially make sacrifices that they hadn't anticipated. So it's hard, it's, it's hard to get snarky about them, but uh, It's interesting you ask because there is one, one lady that I think irked me <laughs> um, Despite being really fascinating, uh, Julia Tyler uh, John Tyler's um, uh, second wife, <clears throat> and much younger, much 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 younger, one of our our youngest first ladies, uh, basically turns turns from being a uh, a Long Island socialite, born of wealth, into um, uh, a a very outspoken defender of slavery during the Civil War. And um, and during her before the Civil War, her stint as First Lady was kind of a a, a prima donna and and in a disgusting sort of way. I think Uh, she liked to follow. um, She liked to be followed by you know a a group of ladies in waiting, if you will, uh, that were dubbed uh, the Vestal Virgins uh, by a critical press. and that's that's how she rolled uh, and I, I think I think it was kind of tasteless in a way it took about a year to write um, and you know it, it's been updated several times right and I think the first the presidents came out in 2004 okay and this one came out so it would have been probably 2006 uh, and then it was updated again in 9 and we just updated it again with a brief chapter by Melania, uh, which hasn't been updated since, but we may update it again in the, in, uh, in the future. So we've been trying to keep up to date with, with new administrations as we go.
1: That's really cool that you're able to update it. And, and, and then it's the book almost has new life at that point.
2: Very true. Very true.
1: Thanks to Cormac for joining us. We had such a great time with him chatting about Ohio's First Ladies and his great book, Secret Lives of the First Ladies. Make sure you pick that up. That'll do it. Uh, thanks to our other five guests who, who joined us uh, for this episode and on previous episodes. We got some sad news about season five. There's only one episode left. In Two weeks from today, we'll drop William Howard Taft versus the world. Uh, a really fun episode we're doing on uh, Cincinnati's president, William Taft. And that'll be it. It's been so fun. We've done so much research. We've met so many great historians uh, over this last six months. And Again, we thank you so much for listening. Remember to go out and vote uh, and follow us on social media. We'll get you more information uh, And starting, like we said, in, in two weeks. We'll be on 610 WTVN in Columbus on Saturday evenings, uh, as long as Ohio State football permits it. And that'll go on through the rest of the year, uh, dropping some Ohio history on the radio. So, yeah, we'll be back with Episode 13, the season finale, William Howard Taft versus the World. Thanks a lot. and Thanks for listening.